Welcome, man. What an exciting time. Hopefully we'll have some viewers, listen, join our, listeners join us. In the meantime, we're going to have a chit-chat. Um, welcome to On Democracy with FP Wellman. I'm Colin. Uh, if you're listening to us online, I hope you'll download the app and join us live to talk about our democracy and how we can all help move the nation forward. Uh, we'll do a little music while everybody gathers, Greg, and then we'll chit-chat. Okay. And roll. I'm so excited to be on the air with you guys today. I'm your host, Fred Wellman. Last night, was the January 6th committee kicked off their public hearings. Everyone's talking about the revelations of just that first, what will be several. Um, I'm here to talk about it today. Uh, if you're new to a call in, it's pretty straightforward or not sometimes. Sometimes I won't let you in the room, which was great. <laughs> but here we are. Uh, Greg, I appreciate your patience as always and giving us another shot too. Yeah. Um, let's get right to it. So, uh, what we got this afternoon, you know, I've been a longtime reader and fan of Greg Sargent. He's made his way around D.C. and political journalism world. Keen insight into our democracy has been invaluable for me. You know, as I kind of grips with this moment we face, you've been a steady voice since January 86th uh, on the events of that day, the larger issues and ongoing threats to our democracy. I think if you've been with me before, you know I, I usually do a little rant at the beginning uh, before we get to our guests. But you've got limited time, and honestly, there's much more to talk about than, than me talking about what I want to talk about. So first we'll talk about that. We're going to talk about the hearing, and then, you know, what we expect to go forward. So... As I mentioned, our guest today is Washington Post columnist, writer of the Plum Line blog, Greg Sargent. He joined the Post in 2010 after stints at Talking Points Memo in New York Magazine, New York Observer. He's the author of the October 2018 book, And Uncivil War, Taking Back Our Democracy in the Age of Trumpian Disinformation and Thunderdome Politics, where he examines the moment we face as democracy and the long-standing movements that left us in the precipice. So, I don't know, Greg, we said this before, I think last time we talked, sadly, three and a half years, years later, not sure if we truly turned the page yet, but we're trying. So welcome, Greg. Thanks for your patience with technology, getting on blind with us for a few minutes here. I know Thanks you got for having me on, Brad. I appreciate it. I know you got a hard out, so we won't take any questions today. We'll just kind of get to it. There's just so much to talk about. You know, let's just kick it off. You know, a lot of people were skeptical that the hearings would be presented in a way, you know, or offer new evidence to be compelling to change minds. Um, you know, even compelling to watch, right? I mean, just, just before we went live, though, you know, I saw that early estimates are saying that over 20 million people tuned in across all networks, which is a giant number. I think Tucker Carlson has 3.5 million viewers on a regular basis. So, you know, that's a pretty good number. What do you make of that assessment now you've had a night to think about it, Greg? Well, I will say that I'm very pleasantly surprised by that. I was quite worried that there wouldn't be a big audience for this, but 20 million, that's, that's terrific. Yeah. And my strong suspicion is that these are not just Democrats who are kind of in that, uh, you know, in, in the place where this isn't going to be new information for them, I would suspect that a large number, I don't know how large, but a sizable number of that 20 million has got to be, uh, you know, independents or uh, people who are really not really too sure of what happened on January 6th and and will be persuadable, I think. Right. Right. I mean, I hope so. Right. I mean, I, and one of the things, you know, I, I, I got into it last, you know, I don't know if you know Tom Nichols on Twitter. He's, he's Tom's an old friend. He's, he's known his brand as being a curmudgeon. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, and, and, uh, and Tom was kind of doing his curmudgeon thing about this isn't really going to reach the people it needs to reach. And my argument I made kind of as strong as I always do make my arguments, of course, was, you know, in the end, that may be true. But, but in the end, the people who should 
who do believe what occurred that day do, who have also become sort of jaded, if you will, like Tom, about that there will be injustice. In the end, this hearing is, is good for them. I, we need to motivate the people who are against these things, the people who are pro-democracy, because I'm seeing a lot of cynicism of people sitting out. So so maybe we won't reach that 30% of MAGA people or the hardcore folks, but we will reach the people who need to understand and take how seriously that was, right? I mean, is that... Do you yeah. think this is going to help? Do you think it will turn out voters? I mean, do we do you think it's going to matter, I guess? Well, I think it, it remains to be seen, but I do want to say something about how this might inform people. Um, so I think there's like been a misconception out there, which goes something like this. Uh, you know, everybody knows what happened. Everyone knows Trump tried to steal the election. Um, this isn't new information and so forth. But I suspect that a lot of lower information voters and, and, and you know, and, and voters who just haven't paid super close attention to this have a bit of a different set of uncertainties about this. OK, they know Trump is crazy. They know Trump couldn't accept that he would that he had lost the election and they know there was a riot at the Capitol. What they don't know is that these things were coordinated. That's the story. Right. right? So when David Brooks writes about this and says all that stuff is old news it seems to me that there's a huge amount of space here for an enlarged public understanding of what happened. It's one thing to know that Trump is can't accept losing and that a bunch of people acted out and, and beat people up and did all sorts of horrible things. It's another to learn that Trump came to see the violence, as I think we'll learn, as an instrumental tool to pr- complete a coup against the United States. That's a very different matter from the picture people might have of this. Right. And, it, and, and you know, Cheney, Vice Chair Cheney really described it as having seven. I, I, it's a new way I've seen it. She said there's a seven part plan, right? One, Trump's massive yeah. effort, minded effort to undermine the election, a trust yes. in the election. His corrupt attempt shortly before January 6th to replace the attorney general with Jeffrey Clark. His relentless pressure campaign against Vice President Pence to reject or delay the certification. Number right. four, his pressing state officials to change election results. Five, this is long, the Trump campaign-led fake elector scheme, which a lot of us have been calling the, the paper coup, right? And then six, summoning yeah. the insurrectionists to D.C. And then, of course, number seven, on the day, his long delay of asking them to go home. It seems like that might be the roadmap for what they're doing, right? I mean, I think they're, they laid yeah. out, because they did talk about the trust in the election. They, they had Ivanka, they had Jared, they had Barr talking about how he was told very directly he had lost the election. Do you, is that going to be the roadmap of, of both the hearings and of the, proving this conspiracy? Yeah, I mean, I think it is. To, to simplify it a bit, there are two, two pieces, two big pieces to the story. One is the procedural coup, which is the weeks and weeks of efforts to co-opt the government in all kinds of ways and corrupt local officials in all kinds of ways and even, you know, use the Justice Department to create the impression of widespread fraud in the election uh, and then ultimately to subvert the electoral count in Congress. That's the procedural coup. The -hmm. second piece of the story is the violence on January 6th. And what I think that roadmap will ultimately reveal with a lot of force is that those two pieces are actually part of the same story. They're part of a continuous story. The violence ultimately became weaponized by Trump and his inner circle, in some sense at least, to finish the procedural coup. This is the thing that I think a lot of people don't quite get. It wasn't just a riot. It was Trump encouraging this sort of violence for the express purpose of intimidating Pence into finishing the job. Yep, yep. 
And I tell you, one of the shocking things along that line is the, the, play, the part of the militias, which you talk about a lot when you write, you know, where the militias are. And then one of the shocking yeah. militias, you know, there's so many shocking relations to digest, but what really struck me was when Cheney said that after, or actually it was the witness said that after Trump's stand down, stand by comment, the debate, that membership in the Patriot or Proud Boys tripled. Yeah. They tripled their membership. What is that? I mean, that's a huge thing I'd never heard before. Um, and then, and of course, they laid out their relationship with the Oath Keepers. What do you think the militia part of this is? is I mean, that seems like a much bigger discussion than we've had previously. We, we knew they were there, but what I'm hearing, what I heard last night was that actually they were the shock troops, that this really was their lead. Well, I will say, if I don't know if uh, a lot of people caught this, but Chairman Thompson uh, told CNN that the hearings were going to establish uh, all sorts of communications between these groups, groups like the Proud Boys and Trump's inner circle. Wow. So what I'm really looking for is what the content of those communications was. What I'm really interested in knowing is to what degree was there an understanding between Trump and his inner circle on one hand and these paramilitary style groups on the other that the pressure on Pence would actually be wrought through intimidation, right? right? Ultimately forcing Pence to do the bidding of Trump and his inner circle when it came to finishing the job on the coup itself. Wow. Interesting. And 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 we yeah. have their documentarian. We we saw them meeting the night before. We right. got we all saw it live. I remember seeing watching I remember calling out to my son as we watched January Six unfold, that one line of oath keepers that made their way up with their backs and each other's and their hands and each other's backs, you know, penetrating the line, going to the doors. You we yeah. really are seeing that the, the, the militias did have a plan. And what I also thought was interesting was uh I believe one of the members of uh, the documentarian, right, pointed out that they never even go to, they didn't even go to the speech, right? They never planned to go to the speech. They went straight yeah, to the Capitol. Yeah, I yeah. thought that was very interesting. Why wouldn't they, right? And then right. there's another piece to, to really establishing, you, you know, the continuous through line that, that we're talking about here, which is Trump's 187 minutes of refusing to call off the, the rioters, right? He was under tremendous pressure from his own advisors and from Republicans in Congress to put out a statement calling off the rioters, and, and he didn't do it for a long time. Now, I think there are a lot of misconceptions out there about this, and I hope these misconceptions are exploded. We're often kind of told that, oh, Trump is just crazy. He's a sore loser. He was enjoying watching his supporters act out. He was enjoying watching his supporters fight for him. But what if what actually happened is that Trump allowed the violence to rage and, you know, to, to terrible consequences, right? Yeah. What if he allowed the violence to rage for the express purpose of pushing Pence over the line into the coup? Yep. And it really was, that's probably for me too, is one of the biggest shifts we've seen and we'll see, I think, yeah. is that I think we were all led to believe that Trump was just sort of, I think, I think the framing has been like he was mesmerized by the violence, like, exactly. like a narcissist exactly. being fed. But yeah, what you do kind of hear, exactly. and you, you yeah. nailed it. What we're hearing now is it may have been much more nefarious, that it was beyond that. And then you see that nefariousness in the fact that Meta, what Milley said was shocking. You know, as a, and I'm a retired army officer, as you know, I did serve in the Pentagon. I know General Milley, um, yeah. and I know General McConville, the chief of staff of the army. So when Milley said very directly that Vice President Pence was urging them to get people up there, but Mark Meadows' concern was the appearance that Pence was in charge instead of Trump. That kind of goes to that same thing, right? It wasn't the mesmerization. It was the commander-in-chief himself was not giving orders. Yes, that's a, that, I think that's a really important point. And we know what happened in the conversation between Trump and Kevin McCarthy, right? 
Right. Um, Kevin McCarthy was on the phone with Trump pleading with him to call off the rioters. I, I think we, we don't know this for sure, but I believe the rioters might have been breaking into his office at that point. Right. But regardless, Trump's response to, to uh, McCarthy was something along the lines of, well, Kevin, I guess they take the election loss a lot more seriously than you do. Yep. And I think it's a very, very tiny jump from there to something a little more like, well, Kevin, if you want the rioters to go away, do the right thing and get this thing delayed. Yep. Yep. I, it's, it's a very small leap. And I think that was, I think, pretty significant for me as somebody who's been, obviously, I've been obsessed with January 6th events since they happened. It's what, <laughs> drew, it, you know, it's what drove me to, to volunteer to be, you know, to step up to be executive director of Lincoln Project. And it's what drove me to create the Beer Hall Project. And obviously, your work is, you know, we've really spent a lot of time talking about it. And that's what I heard, too. And it was really interesting to hear Millie's yeah. voice himself saying, you know, hey, look, all I heard was politics, 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 and I ain't touching that. And that's, that's, but, you know, for me, you know, I've never been the gentlest person on Mark Milley. I'm not going to lie to you. I, <laughs> I have my differences with the general, but that's exactly what I want to hear from the, you know, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs, and, and I pray that that, that holds. Now, um, another piece of this is at the larger picture for the GOP, I think, right? So, you know, as the, the gentlewoman from Wyoming, <laughs> you know, really laid into her GOP colleagues, right? She stated very clearly to my Republican colleagues who are defending the indefensible, there will come a day when Donald Trump is gone, but your dishonor will remain. And this comes after she'd already revealed that numerous GOP members had sought pardons after January 6th. Do you, it, it sounds like there's a shot being very directly shot across the bow of those who decided to remain silent in the GOP. Yeah. Is that how yeah. you see it? Yes, I do. I mean, I think, and, and also I think the, the, the question of what was said about pardons will also go back to what we talked about earlier, the, the degree to which there was, there was a, uh, you know, a kind of a conspiracy here, right? I mean, if, right. if the Republican members of Congress had come to understand that they had done something illegal or even knew all throughout that they had done something illegal or not done something illegal, but participated in some sense in pressuring Mike Pence to violate his official duty or something like that, right? Right. Um, which, of course, came up pretty pretty prominently in the, in the uh, hearings when, when – uh, Liz Cheney said twice that Pence had been pressured to do something illegal. She used that word twice yep. about that particular thing. And so the Republicans in Congress who may have been part of the campaign to subvert electors at the state level or pressure Pence in some sense, then those people asking for pardons really does suggest something uh, on bordering some kind of coordination. I, we'll have to see what the facts show, but that's where that's headed. I wanted to say one other thing about this, though. You know, th there's an interesting kind of s subtle difference between Pence and Liz Cheney here that's worth talking about, I think. Yeah. Pence, yeah. you know, I think people overstate how heroic he was, but hmm. at the same time, he really did do the right thing in in the face of extraordinary corruption and pressure, right? Yeah. And so we got to credit him for that. Yep. But there's a difference between him and Liz Cheney, which is, is important. Liz Cheney says something like, for the Republican Party to actually move on from all this, it has to fundamentally renounce Trump and insurrectionism at its very base, right? Right. The Republican Party has to repudiate it entirely. Otherwise, it won't be a, a real party in a democracy. That's Liz Cheney's point, right? right? And I think that's an admirable point. Mike Pence says something like Trump was wrong and, you know, I did the right thing. Good. 
it's not quite where we need Republicans to get to, the principled ones anyway. Yep. Yep. I, it's, it is significant. I mean, and, and that conspiracy, it, and th- you know, this just came right after, I believe there was a filing that DOJ had a file for one of the cons- uh, January 6th people already being tried. They did state in court that they were waiting for this committee to be done and release all their testimony and their results uh, in September. The fact that the DOJ is apparently also eagerly waiting then to this is also an indicator, right? That there is there is a possibility that a, a, a pure a conspiracy has been found enough that would go before a court. I mean, are you hearing? I mean, obviously we're very early in the process. Do you think you're hearing the the inklings of what could actually be a criminal prosecution finally for those who organize this, or are we still far from that? I really think that uh, you know. I think we just don't know. For all we know, right. they've been running a criminal investigation for some time now. I mean, right. Marcy Wheeler has been pretty persuasive on that point. Um, I, I really feel like it's it's a mistake to kind of lean one way or the other on it mm-hmm. for that purpose, right? I mean, we want them to not tell us what they're doing. Right. <laughs> I mean, I want to know, believe me. But, yeah. but, you know, we want them to be doing this in, in, a, in a 100% above board way for all kinds of reasons, right? Right. And part of that is them not telling us what's going on, unfortunately. Yeah. Yeah. And I agree. I guess, I guess my, you know, I'm also a political operative, right? So, you know, I see, I see the, I, so I have, I, I admit that I am skewed in my views, right? And, and I do see the midterms coming. I work with candidates who are running for office. You know, we, I think many of us who are, are, are political, are like, you know, it, it, there is a, there is a clock on you. No, no, there is a ticking clock. Uh, there's a clock on our democracy. Yeah, you know what I mean? That's and true. so, so while I do understand, you know, it's something I hem about, and I'm sure you've seen me complain about is, you know, norms and traditions are going to kill us, right? <laughs> you know, so so while I do, I, you're right. It, that. Yeah, for sure. You know, it's, and it's going to have to be clean. I mean, if you're talking about prosecuting a former president, there's every I has got to be dotted, every T has got to be crossed. There's, I mean, and, and then some, right? They got to be very fancy and in script, <laughs> you know, but... But by the same token, I do. I, I am one of those who does worry that by waiting and waiting and waiting, um, our norms and traditions, and because then we're going to be close to the midterm, they're going to say, "Well, we don't want to mess up an election, so we're going to hold off." And meanwhile, people who should be indicted are, are getting reelected, and then it can become. You know, it just. I do worry. I mean, what? So, what are you thinking in the big picture again? Overnight, what are the most startling things um, beyond what we've talked about? What, what kind of got your attention as you're watching this thing? I mean, it was riveting television. I, I watched every minute of it. I. Uh, I, uh, the yeah. videos, the, I thought they did a very powerful way of, of stringing the videos, uh, together with, with what was happening in the White House. And, you know, t- it was striking to me to see them directly reading Trump's tweets out to the crowd via loudspeaker. Yes. I mean, that oh, yeah. was very compelling, you know. D- That's uh, what a really else? important thing right there. And, and can I, can I just say something about that? You Please. Know, the reason- the, the reason that's so important is it goes back to what I kept harping on earlier, which is the degree to which Trump and his co-conspirators saw the mob as a weapon to finish the procedural coup, right? We know from some of the indictments that when Trump sent his 224 tweet attacking Pence again, and this was at the point where there were large masses of crowds outside the Capitol really looking like they could do anything. And Trump once again sent a tweet telling the crowd and telling the world that, you know, Pence was betraying them. And according to the indictments filed by DOJ against some of the rioters, the rioters themselves took that as the order to breach the Capitol. Wow. Right? <laughs> I can't believe I just said wow out loud. I mean, <laughs> you know, yeah, I mean, it's, yes, that they happened. did. 
Yeah. Right? It, it happened. And we saw it. And we saw that video was compelling showing it to us. Right. right. And so, so what that means is that they took Trump's attack on Pence on Twitter as an order to commit illegal acts. Yep. And, and, and by the right. same token, we saw those same militia members saying he came, he told me to come. They did a very good uh-huh. job of showing you know, four or five of them saying, well, he said come, so we came, right? That, right, so right, right, exactly, right. And so what, that, what a lot of those people who masked there, remember, Trump during his speech, you know, a little earlier in the day, when he kind of sent the mob toward the Capitol, right, laid out a very extensive case that Mike Pence was betraying them. He was stealing their country from them, yep. right? And yep. he, he threw in the world, world peaceful and all, right? Yep. But, you know, when Trump says one thing, according to Michael Cohen, anyway, he means the opposite. <laughs> right. Like like right. the good little, like going back to the mob, going back to someone, I wish someone rid me of this damn priest, right? <laughs> there's, a, there's a long history of megalomaniacs uh, giving indirect yeah. orders that lead to people getting killed. Oh um, yeah, Michael, <laughs> Michael Cohen. Michael Cohen has provided the key, really. To, to yeah, decode. he is. Uh, he's a lot of fun to talk to, by the way. <laughs> you know, yeah, I think you're right. Yeah. So we're seeing, and they laid that out piece by piece, where right. we we're summoned to Washington D.C. We were egged on to go in there. Um, I, I, I think the first two, the first two hours was very powerful. And then, of course, yeah. seeing seeing uh, Officer Edwards, I, I thought it was it was heartbreaking, but compelling to see the moment where she gets knocked unconscious. Um, her discussion of of her colleague, oh, yeah. you know, it, it's it's. I mean, I, I don't want to say it's being you know used for tear jerkers, but I do think a lot of people have gotten used to the idea that perhaps nobody got hurt, right? And I think it was yes. necessary to lay that out. I thought they did a very good job. She's a very courageous woman who was able to lay that out. Um, yeah, that was very powerful. And, and you know, the discussion of blood was was oh. was really critical, right? I mean, blood was spilled. That's what that's that's the message that sent. Right, and and there was, and I think that's what we a lot of the folks who have tried to you know oh they were just tourists. I've seen Marjorie Taylor Greene, of course, that's her favorite thing is there was tourists, yeah. there's no violence, and then okay, so what hasn't come yet, Greg? Right, so um, we'll talk about that, and I want to talk about the the other side of this coin, what the GOP is doing. But what's come with we, I was telling a colleague we have not gotten Ashley Babbitt's killing, right? We have not yeah. gotten to the events uh, at the barricades within Congress. So there's a lot. It's it's easy. Well, as I, I walked away from that going, wow, that was a compelling case. And then I was like, wow, we just started because we have not gotten to some extremely key moments um, where cops started getting hit in the head with fire, you know, fire extinguishers where, where yes. again, Ashley Babbitt crawled through a window and was shot. I can't imagine a scenario where they're not going to go in depth. I mean, Margie Tara Green was right in the well of Congress saying that um, she was actually trying to stop people from going. <laughs> it's right on video. I've got a feeling that they're going to react to that. So, so I guess my question then with that, it, it does feel also, if you saw when they came out afterwards, that this is still in progress. Like this isn't their report, that this is still in progress, right? I mean, that's what I'm hearing. Yeah, I mean, I think there's got to be, they're going to continue digging for as long as they possibly can. I think there's no question about that. Right. And, and they're going to find those pieces. They were saying very directly on TV, um, we'd like more people to come forward. Maybe it's time. Do you think that the live nature of it and, and how it's going, uh, and by the way, the stunning silence from so many who have been noisy, um, has been, it's been very quiet today, which means, of course, the, the, Repu- <laughs> the Republicans are writing their memo and they'll have their talking points by two or three today. That's usually the way it goes. But. Right. I, I, I can't help but wonder if perhaps they're hoping that some of these folks who've been recalcitrant, um, will participate. I mean, do you see any hope of the those who've avoided seeing the writing on the hall, wall and perhaps participating at some point, or is that a lost cause at this point? 
I got to think it's pretty much a lost cause, unfortunately. I, yeah. I, my, my sense is that the Republicans who are, have gone to the point of spending the last year trying to cover this thing up, there's just no chance that they ever do the right thing. Yeah, yeah. And and on that point, we have their, and I want to talk about quite a bit, is on the other side of the coin is their propaganda networks, right? The the, the Those yeah. who are trying to, you know, Fox News made the conscious, you know, announced very much they're not going to run the hearings they, on their main channels. And then they actually turned around and Tucker Carlson ran his show for a full hour without commercials, without commercial break. You know, obviously, you know, most of us are interpreting that as a, a meaning that they didn't want people to go and switch channels in the middle of the show. Um, what do you think we should, yeah, right? Oh no, we don't want them to channel surf, right? So, yeah, and then get caught up in it. What does this mean? I mean, the fact that there's such a full team push by Fox News and their allies, um, how do you interpret that? Well, you know, the, the, the obvious way to interpret it is that they think that their base can't stand to hear these truths without possibly, you know, second guessing the information they're getting from their propaganda sources, right? Right. Um, but I, I actually think this points to a, a kind of a deeper problem long term. I, I did an interview with Dan Pfeiffer, the former communications director to President Barack Obama, about this. And we, and we went into some depth. He, he's interesting on this topic because he's wrestled with it very directly for a long uh, or he did anyway for a long yeah. time. And now he writes about it. But to me, one of the big problems that we all face is that there are vast information asymmetries in this country right now mm -hmm. where there's a tremendous network of propaganda outlets on the right um, that essentially have tell their voters a story that's completely cordoned off from what's going on in politics in, 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 in the real world. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, at the same time, Democrats communicate with their base mostly through the mainstream media, right, which covers things fairly and covers right. both sides of the story. And the, the big perversity is that uh, not only do Democrats and liberals kind of lack a way to communicate with their base the same way that uh, Republicans do with theirs, but the way Democratic voters get their info actually ends up getting kind of polluted by that same right wing misinformation because a lot of it ends up seeping into the mainstream coverage, creating, you know, a kind of both sides in situation where it's a little hard to know exactly what's right and who's telling the truth. And that's a very serious problem over time, I think, because it's not getting better. It's and, and I, I see no very few signs that the Democratic leadership, which is, you know, pretty sclerotic on this stuff, gets the fundamental challenges of information warfare right now. Uh, you, you know, there's a reason that when Mallory, <clears throat> when Mallory McMorrow, the state senator from uh, Michigan, had her huge viral moment attacking a Republican for, for calling her a groomer, there's a reason that that got so much attention and seemed to unleash so much energy. It's because... The younger people, the younger people in the Democratic Party, like her and Senators Brian Schatz and Chris Murphy and so on, understand the need to punch through the noise with big moments, big viral moments. They right. understand the need for loudness. They, they get that they're in a really cluttered information environment. Yep. And that noise is what cuts through. Yep. Um, and, you know, I don't think the Democratic leadership really gets that right now. I, you know, you're, you're speaking Although, my language, Greg. You know, I'll tell you, though, this hearing does force me to revise that a bit, right? Because <laughs> right. 
You know what I'm saying? You got to give these guys credit. And, and I, I, I really do think part of it is this of Liz Cheney. I mean, yeah, they have a Republican. <laughs> you beat me to it. Uh, they, they have Republicans. Right. You know, and, you know, I, I told them this. Right. She knows how to cut through the noise. Right. Think about it like this. You know, early on when the committee was kind of getting going, they they put out these uh, leaks that, <clears throat> you know, that involved texts among the Fox News hosts and, and so forth. Fox News, Hannity texting yep. Trump and his inner circle and so forth and talking about this stuff. I don't know if that would have happened if Liz Cheney were not on the committee. I agree. And, yeah, and I don't. Created, it, it, it explosively cut through the noise, right? It got on every front page. It got on the networks, right? I, yep. I, Democrats, I think, in some sense, are a little uncomfortable with, with treating politics this way, and I get that, and I, I respect it. Mm-hmm. But, you know, they could, they could learn a lot from someone like Liz Cheney. Well, you know, I, you know my background. I was a Lincoln Project guy, and I've told the story yeah. often. My my first day on the Lincoln Project as a, as the the guy in charge of our mm-hmm. veterans pillar, I asked my colleagues, you know, Rick Wilson. I said, you know, what's our policies? What are my talking points? Like, uh, we don't do policies. We do winning and losing. And and it, it was my <laughs> exactly. first, yeah, it's a true story. And I said, okay, that's a really interesting point. And their point being, they understood that it's about winning and losing. It's not about you right. know getting your best policy. And and the, the talking points are great, but if they're not coordinated, if you're not doing a you know relentless um, messaging, um, you pick simple messages and hammer them relentlessly. For us, for me in that case, it was that you know uh, Donald Trump was not fit to be commander in chief, and here's the proof. And that's what I did. And that if you look at what I did at the Lincoln Project for the during the, from August when I joined, the, I joined it very late on August, but through the general. That's all. I just relentlessly hammered that point that Donald Trump shouldn't be commander in chief. And then I targeted very, very. So, and that's the frustration a lot of us who are professional computers have. I mean, the, the, I mean, I think you see it a lot with uh, those who listen to the show. I talk about when uh, the Supreme Court uh, case leaked, right? By two o'clock, Huckabee's on yeah. TV saying, well, you know, it's really the leak is the issue. And then that was the coordinated talking point that they relentlessly hammered across channels. We don't see that kind of coordination on the Democratic side. And, uh, and you're right. I think you nailed it. It, it, it having yeah. Liz Cheney up yeah. there, having Adam Kinzinger up there, people who yes, are Republican, he's very good at it. And so they cut through that and they keep, keep the message simple. I thought what was interesting to me was it wasn't nuanced last night. I don't think. I think it was very clear. Here, here's, here's what we're going to do. Right. Here's the guy. We're going to prove it, and we're going to hammer it. Here's hammer, the hammer. hero. Here's the villain. Right? Yes, right. And, and, and by I, the way, your point about like the kind of coordinated messaging is, is pretty critical. So there was a recent example that, that is separate from the January 6th stuff, but I think very instructive. Uh, very, you know, In the last few weeks, Republicans all kind of converged on this message about the baby sh- uh, formula shortage, which right. essentially said, you know, uh, Biden and Democrats are sending your baby formula to migrant kids, right, yep. at the border, right? And, and, and that was fact-checked into the ground and, and denounced by all sorts of voices and stuff. But at the same time, on their side, right, every single Republican and every single right-wing media outlet and Twitter, all over Twitter, Twitter influencers and so forth, they all just kept saying it. They don't yep. care if it sounds absurd. It's the noise that matters, right? right. What right. they're sending, uh, the signal they're sending with that noise is there's something wrong with the other party. They hate you. They're trying to hurt you, right? Yep. The details aren't important. The fact checks don't, don't even dent that. Yeah. And that's the difference, right? That That's yeah. important. But, you know, the thing is that I think makes a lot of us frustrated with professional communicators, uh, communicators, which is what I was for a long time, is 
this isn't actually sophisticated stuff. I mean, <laughs> I mean, right. this is this is the messaging construct that I hate to say it. Going back to say 1930s, a place in Germany, perhaps, perhaps the very simple messaging of "there's an other there to blame for your problems." Right. Um, you know, people forget that Hitler rose to power by blaming inflation. <laughs> I mean, that's a fact. Uh, and so it, it, there is a, and I'll never say that's what they're doing. They're following that playbook, but there is a similar playbook that works. Human being, I, I took a college from, a, I took a class in graduate school from uh, Mark McKinnon. If you know Mac McKinnon, he's on that, the Showtime, the circus on Showtime. And, and Mac taught a class on political communication. And what Mac, what Mark McKinnon says is that in the end, communication hasn't changed since caveman days. <laughs> okay. Human communication, you, you have a, you have a, you have a good guy, a bad guy, a journey, <laughs> a hero's journey. I mean, that's how cavemen stole, told stories, and that's how we tell stories today. We fail when we become technical, and, and that, unfortunately, on the left is often the case. They, they want to talk about the nuance of their policy. Or the, it, well, uh, right, and I think, I think that's understandable. That's the thing, right? Uh, right. Liberals, as a, as a general matter, tend to sort of think of deliberative democracy as an ideal. It's something that, you know, ideally is achieved when everyone acts in good faith and offers uh, opinions and thoughts and, and people try to sort through what's right and what's wrong and they converge on compromises. So, you know, that that's, it's, it's understandable why people are reluctant to, to sort of go to play the power information wars this way. Yeah. And, and they have to though. I mean, that's the thing. I, and so it is encouraging beyond belief that what we did see last night was a, a push towards that, that it was an example of that. They were very direct um, they were very uh, clear in their messages. They were all on point. Um, you know, even with the witnesses who did a good job, they, they framed the witnesses in the right way to present the information needed to, to hammer their point. And I think we're going to see more of it. I'm, I'm eager to see more. So, so what do you think's next, Greg? What, what's up ahead on this whole process? Well, I will tell you, to me, one of the really interesting things that came out of yesterday is Liz Cheney's use of the phrase seditious conspiracy. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Right. I don't think we know exactly what she was referring to, but it was certainly deliberate on her part. And what I'm really curious to know is whether they're going to try to outline a case, build a story, build an argument that in some sense, either Trump or members of his inner circle or both engaged in a seditious conspiracy. I, I, I mean, that would be pretty extraordinary. There are various ways that could go. You know, like like we said earlier, one big question is going to be what they establish about coordination between Trump and his inner circle and on one side and, and the paramilitary groups on the other, like the Proud Boys. Right. But if you get to a point where it's something like they kind of had a, a common understanding that the the paramilitary groups would would kind of intimidate Vice President Pence and Congress, if necessary, to push them over the line and finish the coup, then I think you're creeping pretty close to some really serious stuff. Right, and 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 I think you I think the lay I saw it. I mean, I do see it. I saw I saw that exactly. Okay, we saw them. What, yeah. we, you know, you did see. I thought it was interesting that they pointed out very clearly that the Flynn Powell Giuliani meeting in the White House that the professionals tried to stop was let was followed by the tweet calling people to Washington D.C. I think that was a very clear effort to paint the Sidney Powell, yeah. you know, that conspiracy group, Flynn, Powell, and Giuliani, the, the group that was at the uh, the hotel, directly tied to what, and, and what I thought was used about that is the fact that he point, they pointed out very clearly the professional staff, that the lawyers were trying to stop that meeting, which tells me those people are talking, you know, right? They got that from the, so 
I, I think what you're seeing is the seed of the the conspiracy group would be the Giuliani Powell Flynn's leading to the Trumps, leading to the pay, uh, the Proud Boys and the Oath Keepers. Yeah, I I I walked away um, with seeing that roadmap. Um, it'll be interesting. Yeah, no, I think that's I think that's critical, right? Yes, that, the connection between the that meeting and and the tweet. It, it is, and then and then they laid it out. There's the Oath Keepers and the Proud Boys. Me the night before. I don't think we've seen. We didn't see even an ounce of the film that that guy produced, the documentary produced. I think that's going to be a running uh, yeah. piece of this whole puzzle. So I've got a. There's a lot more to come. Yeah, um, and I will say one other thing. Since you asked about where this could all go, I, the, the very fact that there's going to be a lot more about the Proud Boys, I hope telegraphs that we're going to get into the existence of these types of extreme right wing groups and. You know, their overlap with white the white power movement, which is, you know, has, goes back to just after the Vietnam War. Right. Um, and, and the general abandonment of democracy on the far right, uh, you know, the spokesperson for this really is Steve Bannon, who's going to figure very prominently in these hearings, I think. Yep. And if you listen to his podcast, it's essentially... Uh, like a kind of command center for something like a far right insurgency. Yes. And, you know, I think it would be really, really useful if these hearings could sort of explain to the American public what this far right really is and what it stands for. Right. And then leads to litigation or, or legislation. I mean, that was what I was thinking, too, is right. it, could that could this finally be the time we, we finally come up with the domestic terrorism law? We finally have these these issues put before the Congress. I mean, this is a congressional committee. The theory being that this should lead to legislation. Now, one thing that would let you go. I know you got a hard stop. And I really appreciate you. I did want to grab you. You know, you wrote a piece today, I think, about the uh, the changes to the electoral college act that plays right into this right and and I and yes. I thought there was there's some interesting perspective on your Twitter feed about how really the I want to say the, the good Republicans that sounds weird saying it out loud but but those Republicans who don't want to get caught in the crosshairs next time should support these electoral count um, uh, updates what's going on with that well so the latest is actually somewhat encouraging there's a bipartisan group of senators Republicans and Democrats. Uh, working on revising the uh, the Electoral Count Act, which governs how uh, the elect the presidential electors are counted in, in Congress. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, a, a number of Trump's different schemes for stealing the election in 2020 were efforts to exploit weaknesses and holes in that law. And we're at the point now where I think if this committee can very convincingly demonstrate how directly the holes in that law were linked to the plot to overturn the election. It could potentially, I don't want to get too optimistic here, but right, it could potentially <laughs> get us 10 Republican senators, maybe. Um, and, and by the way, a really critical thing, I think, is as far as I can determine, the group is at least to some degree looking at what to do about the possibility of future corruption of the uh, certification process at the state level. So what that That's means different. is, right, this is really very important, right, because what, what that means is that if you have a state legislature or a governor certifying a set of electors for the candidate who lost the popular vote, um, if Republicans take the House at, at the very least, under the current law, uh, House Speaker Kevin McCarthy and House Republicans could just simply opt to count the sham electors certified by a state legislature or a governor, and they would stand. 
And Which so, Mastriano, you know, Mastriano of Pennsylvania right. flat out said he'd do it, right? Yes, he's running on a promise to use his power as governor to ensure that no Democrat is elected president in, in Pennsylvania Jesus. while he's in power. Right? Uh, right. I mean, that's what he's running on. Yeah. And he's for, for, for good measure, he's telling us that God told him to do it. Of course. Um, Right. And so anyway, so you, you can reform that. And they're looking at a way to reform the Electoral Count Act to make it uh, very hard to, to pull that off. And that's huge. I, I think that's yeah. substantial. It's almost the, the counter to the paper coup, right? Because the paper coup, the whole, yeah. you know, was based on this, the bureaucracy, finding the loopholes in that law, um, quietly closing those loopholes would I'd be very happy with that. That that is, is exactly what we've been saying all along. And, and many of the frustrations that many of us have had with the last year and a half of the Biden administration is that many of the loopholes that were discovered within our laws, within our regulations, we, we discovered just how much of a joke the Hatch Act is, <laughs> right? right. Um, have not been closed. So I, I, I you're, it's funny you said it's hard to get optimistic. I, it is hard to get optimistic, but I, for some reason, I have this persistent, ridiculous streak of optimism still stuck in me. I, those yeah, me me <laughs> it's strange. I don't know, but yeah. but it is. I think if we can, and I thought your point today, one of your, your one of your followers' point was a great one that look that. A lot of the Republicans, look, I know, I know, for example, Rob Whitman in Virginia, Virginia won. Um, Rob's a decent guy, right? He really was. I knew him before, when, when, before MAGA came to be a thing. I knew Rob. He's a great retail politician. He's a decent guy. Yeah. Um, and then he turned around and voted against electoral college results because, because his district has gone MAGA. Um, I, can, I can't no, imagine a scenario a- where a guy like him, you know, those kind of folks really don't want to get caught in the crosshairs anymore. Uh, and would, would hope that's, to support this. That's such a critical point, Fred. And, and I've, I've harped on this for a long time, and, I, and frustratingly, I can't get people to pick up on it. But if you're a Republican, right, who doesn't want to come under pressure in 2024 to steal the next election from Trump or a Trump imitator, right? Right. Well, you have recourse. Yep. You know, pass some reforms, and then you won't come under pressure because if, if, if the, the way the system currently is set up, it, it, it's beckoning for people to try again, right. right? And look, it's it's true that a number of virtuous Republicans stepped up at a very hard moment, right? Yes. Uh, that happened in Georgia with both the Secretary of State and Governor. Yeah. Uh, some of the Michigan, some of the legislators in the in the uh, Rust Belt states who, who who Trump was pressuring to to you know certify sham electors didn't do it. Uh, there were some Republicans who behaved very admirably and virtuously on the level of, uh, you know, election offices. Yep. Right. And yep. so and if you're one of these people, right. And, and by the way, there was also pressure on Republicans in Congress, uh, both senators and House members to uh, vote to uh, object to Biden's electors. And, exactly. and, a lot, and a lot of the Republican senators wouldn't do it. Right. And, and so if so, so presumably what that tells us is some Republicans don't want to be pressured. Right. Exactly. Just, just exactly. steal elections. That's good. But, you know, why not insulate yourself from pressure by reforming the system to make it less inviting to try the stuff? Exactly. And I think that may be our message, right? That could be a democratic message. That certainly is a good whip message, right? You know, when we, when they're being whipped on it, um, if, you know, trying to get the votes, I think, I think the Dems could use that message. I hope they do because I it agree. is, a, we should have to be placed. We shouldn't. And by the way, it'll prevent future violence. It, it, there's no point, you know, invading the Capitol when that's not where it's, the decision was made already. Um, we just have to, you know, again, all I want to see is it's something I harp on all the time. I was I've said it on every podcast I've ever been on. Is is when when norms are broken, but they're not 
punished or tightened, the rules aren't tightened, that those norms are broken, well, that becomes the new norm. And if we allow these things to continue, if we allow the laws to be manipulated and then don't react and don't tighten them, then that's going to be the new norm. And we won't be so lucky next time. We won't have the Raffensburgers or others. We literally have candidates running and their sole purpose, they've said, is to do this. This, I mean, And by the way, circling all the way back, the callback is to Steve Bannon, right? Steve's urging people to run for school boards, urging people to run for electoral offices. We saw an article, what, three weeks ago about how the Republicans in Michigan are flooding uh, flooding the zone with uh, their own electoral uh, ballot counters and, and observers. Um, they won't make the mistake they made last time. They're going to be ready. And if we don't tighten the rules and make, get ready, then we'll pay a price. Right. And, and, and it's, it, it's true. I mean, you often hear some, it's, it, ironically enough, it's sort of a variation on the Republican, on the dumb Republican argument about guns, which holds, you know, yeah. you know, criminals won't obey background check laws. Right? Oh, Lord. So the kind of a corollary in the democracy space is that you constantly hear people saying, you know, well, okay, reform won't get you there because, they will, you know, someone who's determined enough to to steal an election will 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 find a way. And it's true that you can't make the system bulletproof, right? At right. some point, somebody decides which presidential electors count and which don't. Right. You know, someone has, so there there will be a human who makes that decision at some point, right? right? So you can't make it bulletproof, but you can make it a lot harder. And that's the goal. I mean, we just had to make the hurdles harder. We have to punish those that break it. Greg, I've taken more of your time than I promised. So what's next for you, Greg? I mean, uh, what do you got cooking right now? Ah, uh, well, I'm just looking forward to the weekend, Brad. <laughs> I can see that now. Monday gets off again. I'll be, uh, I'll be watching. I'm sure you will be too. It's been great. I really appreciate it. I appreciate your yeah. patience with our technology. <laughs> we're, we're calling the startups. So we're still figuring things out, but we're getting there. And especially thanks for doing what you do to tell the story. As always, uh, you are online. You're at your Twitter handles. What, Greg? At the Plumline GS, which is P L U M, not P L U M B. Got it. Hi, the Plumline GS. I follow you a lot. Uh, of course, I was always uh, at FP Wellman. I've got the usual places. I, I appreciate everyone joining us. So we didn't have time to take calls. We really wanted to get Greg a chance to talk about this important moment. We'll catch up again next week. Thanks, everyone, for coming. Greg, thanks for being a guest on the show. I appreciate it the second time, too. I know yeah, I, I owe you one. And, uh, and that's your latest episode of On Democracy. We'll be returning again next week. Uh, in the meantime, keep up the fight, folks. Uh, our democracy is important. And with that, you guys have a great day. Greg, have a great day. Thanks, everybody. Thanks, Fred.